stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, David Byspiel, is a poet, essayist, editor, teacher, and critic. He's the author of five books of poetry, most recently Charming Gardeners, and The Book of Men and Women, which was named one of the best books of the year by the Poetry Foundation and won the Oregon Book Award in Poetry. Byspiel oversaw the revival to national prominence of the magazine Poetry Northwest, serving as its editor from 2005 to 2010. He's a member of the board of directors of the National Book Critics Circle, and from 2012 to 2014 was the chair of its award committee in poetry. And he is also the founder of the Attic Institute of Arts and Letters in Portland, Oregon, a haven for writers whose faculty has included everyone from Matthew Dickman and John Raymond to Kim Stafford and Cheryl Strayed. Byspiel's honors include a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Literature, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship, and a Lannan Fellowship. He's a faculty member in the Creative Writing Program at Oregon State University and also in the Rainier Writing Workshop. And he's here today to talk about his new book, A Long High Whistle, a collection of the best of his monthly essays on poetry and what became, over the course of 10 years, the longest-running newspaper column on poetry in the United States. Library Journal, in its starred review of A Long High Whistle, describes it as one of the best books about reading poetry you will ever find. A perfect introduction to how to read a poem. Byspiel doesn't tell us how to read. Instead, he simply shows us. Welcome to Between the Covers, David Byspiel. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you start The Long High Whistle with a statement, and I just want to read the statement to start out. I believe that most people have little trouble reading a poem that most people like poetry, that most people crave the pure pleasure of poems, and that most people want a poem that's not too obvious. And I was wondering about that statement as I read it, um, whether it was a simple, straightforward statement or whether there was some provocation in the statement. And the reason why I ask is because I had two feelings in, in myself as I read the, the statement, because I think there's something true and instinctual that people seem to gravitate towards poetry when they're younger and writing it, reading it. Uh, it seems like a natural th thing that we do, and, and it sticks for some people and doesn't stick for some people. But then on the other hand, I know a lot of well-read, literate people who are intimidated by poetry or steer clear of poetry um, because they don't understand how to enter it. Tell us about how you open a long high whistle and, and, and how simple or complicated that, that invitation is at the beginning. That's a great question. Um, and I think it's the question that uh, just to anybody wrestles with 
who's trying to read poems, whether they're initiated or not. Um, I totally agree with you that for most readers, there's a primitive uh, desire just to be um, excited by the language itself. You know, hinks, minks, the old witch stinks is still kind of electrifying, right? Um, even if she's jumped into the frying pan. And at the same time, there's this other urge, just more analytic, um, trying to uh, parse out what the difference is between a hinks and the minks and, you know, uh, trying to understand what those terms and languages and metaphors are to us as we read the poems. And so on the one hand, I think that there is a simplicity to reading poems if you feel comfortable being lost. I don't mean all poems make you lost, but being comfortable, you know, traveling in a foreign country, as it were, where you don't know the particulars, you don't know the streets, you don't know the language necessarily, but you're open to um, being alert finding the uh, passageways, looking for the little cafe you like to go to in the evening and, and meet up again with your friends. And at the same time, um, allowing yourself to be stunned, awed, in wonder, mystified, mm -hmm. and accepting that that's okay. Uh, I go to a movie. I'll go to a museum, look at a painting. I listen to music. And um, like anybody else, and I don't understand every single solitary thing about what's going on in any of those forms. I don't even try to. Would you think the intimidation comes from a confusion on how to enter a poem? And, and what I mean by that is um, you have this first essay where you compare uh, the going into a poem and going into a, and learning the streets of a city, which mm -hmm. you, you alluded to in your comments just now. Um, but when you read fiction, there's often you often go in with an expectation with a lot of fiction that you're going to understand on one read. And it's clear from your first column about getting to know a poem that the the correct expectations are not that you're going to read it once just like you do when you 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 go out to dinner multiple times in a mm -hmm. foreign city and you're connecting its history and its its current uh, contemporary scene together it requires a uh, a multiple exploration does that does that sound right to you that that i think that um is my experience too i guess maybe it's unfair to ask uh people when they come to a poem to have the expectation that you need to sort of poke around it first and then read it and then read it again, especially the shorter poems. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, you have that same expectation for the longer narratives or the sort of um, more traditional epics. It's a different uh, appreciation. So I guess what we're talking about really is what's called lyric poetry, which I guess I would define as, you know, a single voice speaking uh, out loud um, on a single theme, more or less, uh, surrounded a particular metaphor, more or less, uh, speaking out loud more or less to nobody, hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Those are a lot of a lot of sort of cagey uh, uh, dodges there, and I think that one difference for me uh, to try to think about in terms of fiction is when I read a novel, I know right from the get go, I'm trying to read it to get out of myself. Hmm. I want to be brought into the narrative and the story and the characters and the scenarios and so on and that are different from my life. Uh, at least that's an expectation I have uh, reading fiction. Um, when you read a poem, uh, and I, I know fiction shares some of this, but when you read a poem, the assumption uh, one should make, I think, is you're the speaker of the poem, that the only way in order to sort of bring it into your body is to make it your experience. And so learning how to um, calibrate your own experiences with what's going on in the poem, there's some bridges there, and some of those bridges are a little rickety. Mm. And some of them are more accessible right from the beginning. They're more sturdy bridges. 
that can be very exciting if you're willing to kind of get nervous on a bridge. Um, I do love the language of, I think, what you call cultural mapping, mm. this idea of moving in geography in, in space and time um, in, in relation to, as metaphor for moving through a poem itself. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's, that was very compelling to me. Well, I do think that most poems follow a, a sequence. Um, the first, and then you can use these as the map points, I guess. One is that at the, at the top of the poem, usually there's some um, uh, revelation for why the poem is really even being initiated in the first place. Um, uh, why has somebody des- decided to say, oh, I'll just use John Keats as an example because it's, it's simple. Um, my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk. My heart aches. That's that's answering something. Mm-hmm. The, the aching heart it's a, that happened before that poem, Ode uh, to Nightingale, happens before he starts to speak. And so once he announces the um, heartache, then the poem is going to go through a sequence of, I'll just call them trials or uh, discoveries, changes, in which you're trying to understand wh- what are the various aspects of the heartbreak. And in that poem... Uh, he tries to transfer his heart up to a, the nightingale, the bird, and uh, realizes that it's impossible and that he's got to live with his own pain. Well, once he returns and understands that he has to live with his own pain, even though he wants to stay with the nightingale, he's got to tell us about that story and right. then and transfer that to us, make a communion with us as a reader. And so I think if people will, uh, when they read poems, they will understand at least that much there's a reason for the poem to be spoken that's often revealed early. What are all the trials that go on in there? And then what's the what's the gift that we're being given at the end? That kind of reminds me a little bit of the Auden uh, advice when he says that when he confronts a verbal contraption, mm-hmm. the two questions are, how does it work and who is the person that is inhabiting that's it? Right. That's right. And he, and he goes further and says, what is their view of the evil one? <laughs> oh really? Yeah. What is their idea of good and evil? Huh. Like, what? How do they? What's their vision of the world? Right. Can you see that in a poem? Huh. Auden says something else, which I've always loved. Um, asked by uh, the question, you know, what advice would you give to a young poet? You know, for someone first starting out in poetry, and uh, he said, "Well, it depends what they ask. If they come up to me and they say, um, I'd like to be a poet,' and I say, why? And they say, "Well, I have a lot to say.'" Then Auden said, I would say, shake their hand and say, well, good, good for you. You're on your way. And he said, if someone else came up to him and said, I would like to become a poet, and Auden asks why, and that person answered, well, I just love the mystery of words and the sounds of words, Auden says, I would take that young poet to lunch. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's great. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet David Byspiel about his collection of columns on poetry, A Long High Whistle. What were some of the gateway poets for you? And also, uh, to flip that around, um, what are ones that you gravitate towards to try to hook people into poetry? Mm-hmm. Um, well, to answer the first part, uh, I think my the first poets I really paid most attention to, even before I was writing, were Walt Whitman and John Keats, uh, probably for different reasons. Um, and I'm not sure I could have articulated what those reasons are. Now I can tell you what the consequences have been. Um, with Whitman, uh, I uh, appreciate his interest in the, the cosmic that he reveals in the minutest things. 
um, all those lists that he has, all those catalogs, mm-hmm. um, they have fidelity to exactitude. And I, and I appreciate that. And they, and they accumulate their uh, emotional power, for me at least, um, uh, because of that. Uh, Keats is a different species altogether. Um, he's interested in the perfection of the art itself. And it's a paradox. He's interested in the paradox that you're trying to write about something in the most perfect form, the most perfect order of words, and so on. And that becomes a vessel. He calls it a vessel um, that you give to someone else. But then once it's released from you, you aren't perfected. You remain imperfect. And and that's a difficult pill for, I think, a lot of writers to take. But I, I took to that pill. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed my imperfection. <laughs> <laughs> but you, and using the poems to try to do something else. Right. Um, as far as uh, uh, suggesting poets, you know, entryway, you know, gateway poets, um, that's a harder one to answer. I mean, there are some, it depends what it is you want them to enter. Right. If you want them to understand kind of the emotionalism of poetry, you know, its core emotional um, glories, you, you know, you pick a poet like you know for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want them to understand, it's kind of this narrative potential. You pick a poet for that reason. You sure. want them to understand sort of the crazy uses of language, and you know, poets that use only twenty-three of the twenty-six letters in the alphabet and, and only six of the right. parts of speech. Well, you pick a poem for that. And um, mostly, I think you're just trying to jostle them into seeing, into, uh, it's a ricochet, you know, where you're trying to get them pushed a little. It's like bumper cars. You're trying to push them somewhere in which they can respond with something mm-hmm. and respond in kind and kind of mirror it. I mean, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And and um, imitation, as with other studies, has, has sort of been the approach I've used the most. You have two essays in A Long High Whistle uh, that follow each other, one called Occasion of the Non-Occasion and, and another One Kind of Knowledge. And in the former, you say, and I'm, I'm putting these together partially because I think there are a whole bunch of productive contradictions in this book that I, that I think are really useful. And, and this, is, this is potentially one. In the former essay, you say, if poetry did not exist for even a single day, that would be the day it gets invented. And elsewhere, you say that no culture has existed without poetry, that poetry is central to being human. But then in the following essay, you, you confront the question of poetry's small audience uh, compared to the other arts, how it, it's never aimed to be a mass art, um, it doesn't sell well, and isn't very widely read in comparison to, say, novels or, even, or memoirs. Um, how are both of these things true in your mind? How, how, do, you, uh, how do you grapple with that weird knot? Um, Well, that's a good question. I think that um, poetry would have trouble being a mass art. It would take too many people to make a poem. You know, the the mass, things that get produced, mass produced for mass audience take a lot of cooks in the kitchen, Mm. you know, who are um, trying to create it, market it, um, and and sell it to the world. Poetry has the expectation that you're predisposed. And the poems are out there, and their invitation to you is, you know where to find us. Um, we're, the, we're down the lane here past the forest where the campfire is. We're the people in the, in the crowded party who are talking in the kitchen. right? And it's, uh, it requires quietness, because what you have is uh, one poet talking to one reader, listener, at a time. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, intimate in that way. 
just as you know, you and I are talking right here. And that's why I think it has that essentialism to it. And that most people, you know, you and I read, and I read a lot of books of poems uh, for various reasons. Most people do not read poetry the way I do. And they might have one poem that they may have had quite a long time ago, hmm. you know, back in the day. Right. You know, like the music listened to. It's their Leonard Skinnerd, and uh, <laughs> and and they that's all they need. Yeah. They can care that for the rest. Of, they don't need the newest book by so and so. Right. And so that that smallness is actually gigantic inside of them. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the other mediums are better at the at a, at a larger audience. I mean, because I think of fiction and film in particular, especially with the movies, their ability to Create a bridge that we can access right away uh, happens and create exposition to explain how to get onto that bridge is um, much more common and much uh, more expected by an audience than a poem. Uh, last night I saw that uh, very lovely movie, Mr. Holmes. I think it's called Mr. Holmes. Yeah, I haven't about, seen it. About uh, Sherlock Holmes 35 years after he's retired with Ian McKellen. And um, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, but I realized even watching it that um, two things were happening to me. One was, well, I know the Sherlock Holmes stories, and I already care about Sherlock Holmes. And so I was already predisposed to care about the aging Sherlock Holmes. If it was just about an aging gentleman living on the, you know, on the coastline with a, uh, a housekeeper and her young boy, that would have been a lovely story too. But it was Sherlock Holmes, and I already have an emotional response to him. It also, the movie also modeled um, a movie called, I forget who directed it, called The Shootist, that was John Wayne's last movie. And he played an aging gunslinger, that's the Western version of Sherlock Holmes, um, uh, dying of cancer, who had come to this um, boarding house with a mother and her son. The mother was played by Lauren Bacall, and the son was played by a teenage Ron Howard. Huh. And um, he's going to have one last shootout uh, before he dies, and he expects to die in the shootout. He's the gunslinger who was never killed. Well, it's about John Wayne. It's about the iconic figure of John Wayne as the Western hero all those years. And so if you care about John Wayne, that Hollywood, the figure of John Wayne, well, then you care about that movie. Right. Otherwise, he's just a wretched old man who used to kill people. <laughs> in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet David Byspiel about his collection of columns about poetry, A Long High Whistle. You mentioned this this thing that you come to the movies with, um, which I do think you can come to poetry with in the same way. Like if you, and, and one of the things that I love most about this collection of columns, actually, is your discussion of, of the way poems and, and poetry are in conversation across time. Um, you mentioned in the beginning around the cultural mapping that when you walk through a new city or you walk through a new poem, you're, you're looking for what's distinctive and what's connective. You're looking for what's historical and what's contemporary. And similarly, the different generations of poets are um, in conversation with other historical poets mm -hmm. or trying to distinguish themselves against certain poets, either contemporary or not. Can you return to this issue, which isn't unique to poetry, but is certainly part of poetry. And, and one of the parts that I really loved is, is um, what poets tried to do in the shadow of Shakespeare. So Shakespeare's written, he's casting one of the longest shadows in literature now. And what do you do? I mean, you can't one up him necessarily in his form. So tell us a little bit about um, 
poetry right after Shakespeare and, sure. and what, uh, what some of the strategies were of that generation yeah. of poets were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, to preface that, I would say that one of my purposes for the column, and, and you know, I wrote it in the Oregonian for 10 or 11 years, and was to talk about how to read a poem every month and that you could be both um, informed about how to read a poem so you could be in a position to walk into the movie the quote movie theater of the poem uh, much better than you were if you didn't read poetry at all well um the poets following shakespeare had a big fat problem and that was how do you go how do you top shakespeare and every generation okay let's go with an assumption every generation wants to uh sweep aside the generation that came before it that's natural uh, that's what you co- grew up reading. You you feel it as a, somewhat of a challenge. You're both informed by it and also repulsed by it. And um, boy, how do you get repulsed by Shakespeare, who was obvious even then as the great uh, uh, figure in, in British letters? Well, the, these uh, poets, I'm thinking of Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift um, in particular and there are other people around them, uh, they determined very quickly that, well, Shakespeare's great and all, but he's not perfect. You know, his rhymes aren't perfect. His meters aren't perfect. And so they do what most um, patricidal generations of writers do. They leapfrogged over Shakespeare to the classicists of ancient Rome and ancient Greece and looked for writing which was they took to be um, perfect, hence classical. And so that period in the 19th and um, the 18th century that followed Shakespeare um, becomes the new Augustan period. And what their interest was, it was to write perfect forms, uh, to reanimate old forms. So instead of writing um, an epic poem, a pope writes a mock epic poem. Hmm. Um, and because he also wants to write satire, which Shakespeare doesn't do that much of. So they were also looking for places, no, I don't know if someone's going to call in and say that there's plenty of satire in Shakespeare, but that was not his main <laughs> right. um, literary focus. Well, while those Augustine, if I can just take the story further, if those Augustine writers uh, of, the, of the 18th century were interested in decorum and meter and perfection and in social ills, um, you know, a modest proposal, which is which was not poetry but is written in that area, era, the poets that come later, uh, John Dryden, William Wordsworth, uh, John Keats, William Blake, um, Shelley, they just thought, could we have somebody have a drop of blood? Could somebody feel something? Anything? Well, you, you, you do say that Wordsworth changes everything. He does. So, so what does that mean? What happens when, when he arrives on the scene that resets the, the yeah. stage in yeah. poetry? And we're still, we're still um, I think, in the era that Wordsworth created. Um, what Wordsworth does is he, he looks back at the Augustans. And I have to say, Wordsworth was born in that century. Uh, he's educated in that uh, Augustine century, the uh, the um, the eighteenth century. He publishes his first book in seventeen ninety five, and he looks at the writing and says, "This is fine and all, but I can't feel anything, and I don't feel like this language is understandable by normal people, and it's not written in a language that, uh, as he says, is spoken by everyday people." Hmm. And he also felt that the writing. Um, didn't have any meditative aspect, which is about longing. And so he um, wanted the writing to be, as he said, recollected, have a sense of being recollected in tranquility. Hmm. 
And then once the writing got, once you got into the writing, you wanted to make the reader feel like it was happening in that moment. And so he begins to write about more natural subjects, more organic subjects, the countryside. Uh, he lived up in the Lake District. Um, Keats begins to write about um, who follows Wordsworth. Um, my Heart Aches, this is his poem, uh, Ode to a Nightingale begins. He wants to write about how he feels about the world and as he confronts mortality. Um, and this goes on again and again. Uh, the early 21st century poets reject that romantic uh, impulse. Uh, they live in a world that's more chaotic and more fragmented, and they start to write in that to um, uh, simulate that. So that's how you get a poem like The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Uh, later poets, uh, say in the 50s and 60s in the United States, sort of begin to reject that fragmentation or looking for something that connects the psyche, a lot more Jungian. Uh, kind of view, and you get poets like Robert Bly and Galway Cannell and W.S. Merwin and, and so on. Um, and some poets uh, are really great at straddling it all. I'd say, for me, um, an American poet who really figured out how to straddle all that at once, and that's rare, is Adrienne Rich. She was able to write privately and publicly, um, almost in the same prepositional phrase. And uh, I have a lot of respect for that. I have a great deal of admiration for her work. I love her poems. Since we're on the topic of rich, um, one of the other uh, productive contradictions, I think, that happens in this book is around politics and art. Uh, you have one column where um, you have one column called To Witness and to Sing, where you say, I've always been leery of overtly political poetry. Yet at the same time, uh, a lot of the people you put forth Adrian Rich, mm -hmm. uh, at one point Allen Ginsberg, um, and many others, and you yourself, who's who've written for Politico and have in and have written a column for Poetry Magazine that really um, exhorts the importance for poets to be engaged citizens. Um, so tell us about your leeriness about political poetry, and your your um, desire to uh, push poets to be politically engaged. I think my leeriness begins uh, by a general leeriness with propaganda. I'll try to make two, use two different terms. So there's political poetry, which I think is poetry about social relationships in the civic sphere, uh, the personal, you know, the identity in relationship to the, um, to the community. That to me seems, that's what political is and how you arrange your relationships. I think what I'm most leery about is partisan poetry, hmm. uh, poetry which... Um, um, beats a drum for a particular partisan view, uh, whether it's blue poetry or it's red poetry. You know, um, uh, you're just uh, singing to the choir and you're um, extolling some propaganda. So there's no uh, question at its center, no mystery at its center. That's right, and no metaphor. I mean, no real uh, honest metaphor. It's um, about persuasion rather than uh, an interest in change and discovery. Um, so you could utilize all the language and interests of politics and not have a partisan poem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think of uh, a lot of idle poetry today. It's uh, Terrence Hayes or Claudia Rankin that mm -hmm. is very politically charged, but isn't partisan. That's right. I mean, I think in, in Claudia Rankin's case with her latest book, Citizen, that, that's a, um, an interesting book to talk about on this question. Um, I think on the one hand, uh, when she wants to be most partisan um, and most ideological, I should say, and I, I, I really, I should say up front, I really like the book. 
Um, I was on the committee that chose it for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, and I was, uh, it's a book I've been thinking about quite a lot. But when she wants to be most political, and as I mean, and I mean partisan, she writes in prose. Hmm. And when she wants to be most uh, writing areas that are where there's the most discovery and the most mystery, she then returns to verse. And uh, that may be a distinction. That's interesting. Yeah. And that book is interesting in how it leaps from prose to to lyric essay or poetry mm-hmm. and, and also to image. That's so right. So there's, That's there's right. a way in which that collage and juxtaposition um, unsettles every component of it. That's right. And she calls it an American lyric. It's the second book she's called that, you know, as a subtitle. And I think what she's proposing there is that collage of verse, prose, and then images um, is is what lyric does. Uh, it takes uh, this thing and it puts, it takes, let's think about it alphabetically, instead of going A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, etc., um, the lyric begins with H, moves to Z, maybe has a run of A, B, C, then it goes to L, then it circles back to A, and, and that's that's what she thinks of as lyric. And so those different forms, those different means, um, are her way of advocating for a, um, a lyricism of political content. Can you speak a little to the uh, the feedback and the viral nature of the Poetry Magazine uh, essay that you wrote <laughs> about being a poet citizen? Like yeah. maybe uh, maybe just orient our listeners to the the nutshell of what you were saying, sure. and maybe one or two of the most memorable responses that you received. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wrote a piece uh, in uh, Poetry Magazine some years ago um, that advocated for poets to be um, both poets and citizens in the world. Now, I, there are some caveats. One is I said very cle- clearly in the piece early on that it's none of my business what a poet decides to do with their life and how they are a poet and how they write uh, their poems or live in the world. And I showed models of poets that had no interest in poetry. I mean, if you uh, in politics, if you read John Keats, if you read Emily Dickinson, it's hard to if you read Emily Dickinson. It's hard to know that we went through a great civil war. Hmm. You read John Keats, it's hard to know that it comes after the French Revolution. You just don't see it. it's not in the work. And, that, and those are both two poets I adore. Um, and I was also the other caveat is I was not, uh, and I said in the piece, I was not trying to advocate for people to write political poems. What I was advocating for was them to use their powers as poets and their place in their in the culture as poets, um, as imaginative thinkers, and who have uh, skill sets in language. Um, to use that in the public arena, outside of poetry, uh, to be to represent not the poet's point of view. I mean, all the poets, but to represent metaphor's point of view about events and to try to um, disabuse people of uh, cliché metaphors that get, you know, that we use to, at a most reductive level. Uh, I don't know why this one comes to mind. I think of the 2000 campaign for president and Al Gore, um, I don't know how many times talked about putting Social Security in a lockbox. Mm-hmm. I remember that. A lockbox. And you wanted to say, well, who has the key? <laughs> what kind of key is it? Uh, how, what's the code to that lockbox? Or I remember... Um, uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, now Chief Justice John Roberts, saying in his testimony to Congress that he saw being a judge as a justice as being like an umpire. And everyone thought that was such a great, in a baseball, for pitches, calls the balls and strikes. And I wanted to say, that's too reductive. What's your strike zone? 
<laughs> okay? Do you like them high or low? Right. All right? There's more to the, to the metaphor. And that's what I meant by metaphoric thinking in the public sphere. Um, I got to do it for four years, uh, almost every day at Politico, and it was a, a real charge. And I will say some of those political professionals, you know, they're good, and they're good at language. Mm. And, um, and uh, I just felt it was a question worth raising. Some of the feedback was um, any time a poet goes into the public sphere without their poems, it's bad for poetry um, because that's not what a poet is supposed to do. Some of the other feedback, negative feedback was, well, when I write a poem about the um, a seed that's going to grow into a watermelon, and I'm not talking about politics at all. I'm just talking about the what binds us together in life. That's also political mm-hmm. by turning your back to it. And so I, those are valid responses. Yeah. And uh, I just really wanted to start a, the conversation about it. And you did. <laughs> I sure did. Well, what do you think of the Yates, the Yates quote that you cite? Uh, we make out of the quarrel with others rhetoric, but of the quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. Um, I think that's pretty nifty. Oh, I've used <laughs> it. I love it. I do. Yeah. He has another little poem, which I have in the book, called Politics, uh, which he um, describes being asked his opinion about some event. Uh, I could read it. It's very brief. And um, instead, he just wants to look at the... He wants, he wants to look at something that fills his eyes with beauty. Yeah. Um, Why don't you read it? Sure. This poem by W.B. Yeats called Politics, um, he wrote during the 1930s with World War II on the horizon. It's very brief. It's maybe about 10, 11 lines. And it goes, um, how can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yes, here's a traveled man that knows what he's talking about. And there is a politician that has read and thought and maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But, oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet David Byspiel about his collection of columns on poetry, A Long High Whistle. Another interesting part of, of this book is your you wrote a series of columns comparing British the history of British and American poetry, and then also some columns on what makes American poetry distinctive or begins to make it d- distinctive. And, and you contrast British song to American speech. So could you tell us a little bit about that series? Well, I owe mo- almost all of my thinking uh, on those two subjects, first to Joseph Brodsky and second to Stanley Plumley, two poets and, and critics. It's Stanley Plumley who said that uh, American poetry was like speech barking back at song. And what he was um, addressing was the idea that American poetry's predominant um, tendency, I guess I would say, and history has been free verse. Uh, it's uh, unrhymed and irregularly metered uh, lines of poetry and even prose poetry. As opposed to British verse, where the tradition has long been um, metrical uh, writing, and um, rhymed writing, though there's a lot of variability there. Um, and what he felt was that even when you're writing unrhymed and unmetrical uh, 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 lines of poetry, they are still meter in the in your making, and they're still rhyming going on. They're echoes. Uh, you're just trying to distort them, or they're being distorted naturally, organically, uh, because you're not adhering to them in a pattern. 
Um, and so he took that to be a distinctive uh, characteristic of American poetry, that you're, you are forebears of British poetry, you're still un, you know, underneath the ground of our speech. But speech was more important, and so was the sentence. That's very, I think it's got a little bit technical. Um, uh, Brodsky had, a, a, I thought, a, a wonderful way of talking about the difference between British and American poetry. He said that when a British poet, this is his anecdote, when a British poet goes into the forest to write a poem and uh, sits down at a rock among some trees and looks around and begins to craft his or her poem, the first, time, the first thing she has to do is describe what has happened here at this crossroads in this forest in the history of Britain, the continent of Europe, mm-hmm. and in British literature. And then she can say, here's what's happening to me now. Because the um, geography is so small and the history is so long in the literature. He says, when an American poet goes into the woods and walks to a crossroads, and he, here he was really thinking of someone like Robert Frost, uh, goes to a crossroads and sits down in front of a tree and looks at a tree, that poet thinks, nothing has happened here in American literature, ever. And can just immediately begin to talk about identity and the self and the relationship to to the natural world. And so he extrapolated from those two stances that that was a core difference in uh, American poetry and British poetry. And I think that's why American poetry now, you know, is so interested in anything that's new, um, and trying to um, create as much juxtaposition as possible to try to stay in the, that flavor that uh, every time you begin to speak in a poem, you're re-identifying yourself in a, in a brand new place. I mean, that is, I think, one of the great motifs of American life. Um, and you've also mentioned that American poetry often is a mix of high and low diction, which I would imagine comes mm-hmm. from from having so much influence from speech. I think so. And I, and I also think it's our melting pot. Um, and it also thinks it, it's um, our being a superpower. And our language is a, a superpower language. Well, I wondered about the superpower thing in relationship to the politics, too, because when you mentioned that uh, an American walking into the forest and they don't have a history to confront, but they do have a history. I mean, maybe not a literary history, but we, we are, are also marked by our sort of historical amnesia that mm-hmm. this culture has not specific right. to poetry. There's a certain advantage maybe and disadvantage to that sense of not engaging the historical. I mean, there's the weight for the British person going into the forest of having to confront this huge apparatus of history, but um, there's also a relationship. That's right. I think that... Um... In that um, um, paradigm, it's very much about uh, the former colonies and the colonizer England. You know, it's it's about Amer- it's about the new American identity, um, and at the same time, there has been something happened in that force, as you're implying. Right. Right. There uh, have been people who have lived in that force long before Robert Frost walked into that forest. That, to me, just illustrates that American poets, by and large, in this, in this anecdote, in this paradigm, um, are as culpable of the uh, amnesia that you're talking about. Uh, but that's changing. Um, uh, I think it's changing in particular uh, amongst the poets of the South um, and the American South. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, earlier, you know, say, let's say 40s, 50s, 60s, um, uh, I think of two poets of the South, James Dickey and Robert Penn Warren. And those poets were writing, they're Anglo poets, they're writing in Jim Crow South, 
um, and post-Civil War South and post-commemorative Civil War South. And they were trying to figure out what is a new way of being a Southerner with the stain of, um, of, of losing the war and the stain of racism and still be a progressive-minded literary thinker. Today, um, I'd say the leading poets of the South um, are African-American, and they're, um, they're really none too happy with Robert Penn Warren and James Dickey, too, and they're trying to uh, assert um, a fairer, uh, more honest, a less forgetful uh, vision of the past. And there, I think of poets like Natasha Trethewey, um, Kevin Young, Nick Finney, mm-hmm. Terrence Hayes. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about uh, American, the American distinctiveness of American poetry. Uh, you mentioned free verse as part of it, um, and you also have a, a column on Denise Levertov where you call her uh, poetry open form poetry. Is that different than free verse to be open form, and is open form uh, also a distinctively American form? Well. Um... They kind of catch me uh, using terms that more or less mean the same thing. Okay, I didn't know yeah. if they were the same. Yeah, but I also, you know, feel like um, if I can say uh, one of the great debates in American poetry over the last fifty, sixty years and beyond is this question of rhyming and metrical verse, and unrhymed and unmetrical verse, or patterned verse, closed patterned verse, fixed patterned verse, and unfixed open, free verse. And this is, uh, more ink has been spilled on this than has been written about uh, George Washington's life. And it's a terrible debate. It's a dumb debate. Uh, what it says is there is a, an official way of doing this. It's a censorious debate. And to be honest, I think the poet who can turn his or her back away from that problem, should it be in this kind of writing or should it be in that kind of writing, and simply follows their interests, both in their material and in their means for writing, um, will go much farther into their own work uh, and into their own imagination and their ability to create than those who get um, caught up in the poetry wars about um, the I am, the trochee, and the not the I am, the trochee. Uh, you can't write without them. They're all, all poetry is formal poetry. Because poetry is an organic, it's all it's all made thing. It's all fashion thing. There are decisions being made all the time. Anytime you make one line and then break and go to another line, that's a formal decision, and um, it's just a matter of gradations. It's uh, where it is on the continuum. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet David Byspiel about his collection of columns on poetry, A Long High Whistle. Let's talk a little bit about some of the movements and and contemporary poetry that irk you. Uh, <laughs> you have a you have an essay in this called Poise mm. in, in this collection. And you also now, having finished writing for the Oregonian after 10 years, you're now the, you write poetry column for the Rumpus. That's right. And you had, following your uh, poetry magazine viral essay, you had a, an essay in the Rumpus uh, called Something More Than Style. And in that one, you say... While many of the world's poets are deeply preoccupied with war and hierarchy, with exploitation and power, there's a pervasive sinisterlessness in American poetry. There is hash and rehash of the quotidian, an alarmlessness, alarmlessness, a niche of the nada. Deafness has become a substitute for compassion, style a stand-in for thinking and feeling. Self-destructive forms are now glorified over 
measured insight. And I don't know if this links with your the the quote you have in in the poise essay, but I'll just I'll juxtapose okay. the two, and then you can tell me if you're talking about something differently. Okay. What you see everywhere these days in our little magazines and online quarterlies in early 21st century America is a poetry of the addled and the disheveled. Everywhere you look, cosmetic indifference, fleetingness, manufactured distress, automated irony, and rank certainty substitute for emotion, insight, and thought. American poetry has become overexcited, hesitant, misgiven, and uncertain. I would love to... I, I don't know if those are both two sides of the of uh, commentary on the same issue or if they're two different issues in a certain subset of American poetry today. But talk to us about this. Sure. Um, I do think American poetry has become the things I've described or, or I wouldn't have said it. And I think those two dovetail um, with each other um, and, and weren't written that far apart. So, you know, within a couple of years probably. I think that um, not only is American poetry um, addled and overexcited in its uh, um, ways of talking about the world, so is American television, so is the news, so is MSNBC and Fox News and so on. There's, there's a lot of um, uh, effort to get attention, and the, the thing that gets attention is um, discord, disruption, um, the addled, uh, outrage. Um, and and you could add five other things, right, that you know uh, are um, attention getters in uh, mass media and social media. Um, and I think that uh, poets who are susceptible to those kinds of uh, ways of uh, those articulations um, naturally, I mean, I don't blame anyone, but naturally are trying to incorporate that into their, into their writing of poems. To me, it always comes across as uh, not a lot of things. It's not meditative. It's not evaluative. It's not um, open to being incorrect. It's not um, uncertain. And uh, and those are characteristics of what I was calling poise, uh, being able to be both caring and in awe and also uncertain and vulnerable. Um, boy, I mean, the piece you wrote that we were talking about a while ago in uh, Oregon Humanities is an example of poise. It's an example of wanting to be close to something, finding that, uh, just being, putting, that puts you at risk that you didn't know you were at risk, and then discovering what was true about the whole experience, both the uncertainty and the certainty. Hmm. That's a quiet, mindful, in-the-moment uh, way of looking at the world, and and there are many poets who write in that vein, and I guess I have a preference for that. Uh, what I have a preference for is um, looking for ways of, uh, I'll just say, mythologizing our experiences. And the poem is the ceremony that shows you what that experience is. And um, that takes a little quieter tenor, I think, and a little more poised tenor. Um, and then what, you, what I run into all the time with... Um, you know, when I travel and do conferences and talk to other uh, younger poets uh, who are trying to figure that out. They're trying to figure out what it is they want to write, honestly. Um, they are um, attracted to style. And they think that style is a route to understanding their inner life, and, and likely it is for them. Um, but it, it is a remove from 
what it is and how it is they see the world. Is the essay the something more than style? Is is the main target of that conceptual poetry, or is it a larger subset of poetry? Uh, are are you looking at you know like Kenneth Goldsmith mm-hmm. and uh, other like conceptual poets? Yeah, I think conceptual poetry, um, uh, which you know is should be defined as. Uh, I guess essentially anything that someone else wrote that you want to call poetry, uh, and that you put your name underneath. Um, you mean you mean appropriated text? Appropriated text. There yeah. you go. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I think that's the poster child for what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, that comes out of an externalization of experience. That comes out of of a life on the internet. Um, and you know, I think uh, you know Kenny himself has said, if it doesn't exist on the internet, it doesn't exist. And I just, I just fundamentally disagree with that. I just don't think that's even remotely connected to my experience of life. Right. But it's hard to know when he's being a provocateur. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. That is a super provocative statement. The 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 joy that someone like that gets to um, experience is whether they're being a provocateur or not. It doesn't matter. Um, they can um, they can put up the glass wall of I'm being a provocateur. Right. No, it's a, I was it's just, completely. I was just. Jo- I was just joking. Right. <laughs> you say after you hurt someone's feelings. Well, sure. Like he just read the autopsy of mm-hmm. Michael Brown at a at a university and caused quite a, a legitimate uproar over the way he, yeah. he edited it and delivered it. That's right. And some of us, you know, who've been writing a little bit in opposition to that kind of <clears throat> aesthetic, didn't really need that one. Uh, you could have picked, you know, uh, you know when he. If he, I don't know if he has, but if someone wants to, uh, you know, read the phone book and call out their poem, that's also not really, uh, you know, what that's not doing is, is saying that you're trying to create new metaphors to understand experiences that we all share. The differences that between us are pretty minor. You know, most of the things that are going on between us in life across the world, our interdependency is much greater than our differences. And I'm not even just making that up. That's what the Human Genome Project tells us. 99.9% are the same. But 90% of the time, writers work on that one-tenth of 1%. And so they're trying to show what's different about them. And yet you, I look at you and you look at me and same hair color, different skin color, different uh, height, weight. So wait, the differences are astonishing. When I go to read something, as we were saying at the beginning, go to read a poem, I'm looking for commonality. I'm looking for connection. I'm looking for communion. And so if the poets are only trying to, if a writer is only trying to um, present the difference. Well, this might also go back to how much America and American poets engage with history also. Mm -hmm. I would wonder, like, because part of commonality is is recognizing what you owe to people who've come before you, I, th- I think, yep. in art. That's right. That's right. I think you're absolutely right. And you can point your finger at someone like Ezra Pound who says, you know, make it new. And if you have to constantly make it new, you have to be, have, to use your word from earlier, amnesia. You have to forget everything that's happened before you so that you can put together some new combination of sounds and words um, to appropriate from other places and then put that in the places in which we usually present poetry and call that a poem. Um, and it's a fast one, really. Uh, uh, but if what people are looking for is connection. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to David Byspiel about his latest collection of columns on poetry, A Long High Whistle. 
I just was at a lecture of Tony Hoagland last week, and he was talking about collage being the gift of the 20th century for for poetry, but that postmodern poetry, and I don't know if that if he's referring to conceptualism or something more than conceptualism, mm-hmm. hasn't found its humanism yet. Is that does that sound right to you? I mean, he was showing poems that um, were. Uh, juxtaposed one that had a sense of uh, cause and effect in the juxtaposition, which lended a sense of optimism that you could interfere in the chain and change history, that you could engage with history. And another that was uh, collage and juxtaposition where you're just noticing everything that's happening, but there's no rhyme or reason to why it's all there. And no way to no way to step into it in a way that makes you feel like an actor potentially in it. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I agree with what Tony's saying, uh, and I've seen him say it elsewhere too. Um, generally, I think what he's um, it's a rear guard defense of, of about humanism. I, I think that the the, the postmodern poets he might be representing, conceptualists that you're talking about, uh, humanism isn't their interest. And uh, we were talking about Wordsworth earlier, and really, you know, he codified what humanism meant for for poets, and we've been re- receptors of that ever since, and makers of a new kind of humanism ever since. And I think Tony's trying to defend that. Um, I don't think the conceptualists really care. That's not their interest. Hmm. Uh, their interest isn't even the body. It's a very disembodied kind of art. That said, uh, to defend to defend them for a second. Um, it's not my job as a reader to be necessarily hostile, though I have I have tastes <laughs> and I have right. aesthetic interests and I have skin in the game, I guess, and, and I have what I like and what I think um, the art does best and what it doesn't do best. Okay, so all, there's all that. That's me and one guy. But if I want to um, try to read uh, poetry, which, as I was joking about before, you know, only uses eight of the letters of the alphabet and only one part of speech... It's up to me to change my stance. So if I come on that saying, well, I don't see the story, I don't know where to enter, I don't know where the blood is, and I don't see any humanism in it, maybe that piece is never asking me to answer any of those questions. It's not even trying to deal with any of those questions. So, for instance, if I look at a painting by Norman Rockwell, a Thanksgiving portrait of the grandmother holding the turkey and the grandfather in the coat and tie behind him and the family at the table and all white, and I mean, it's a Thanksgiving in which it's all white and there's not one drop of grease on anybody. There's not one... No one's even been in the kitchen, it looks like. Right. It's pristine. I know how to enter that. I know what that's saying uh, in terms of its nostalgia, and I know what the underworld of that is, which is uh, you know, about a kind of America, an American dream. And I know that that American dream is, 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 has falsities to it. On the other hand, I look at a painting like Lavender Mist by Jackson Pollock, which is the drip painting. It's uh, got blacks and whites and a little bit of blue and some orange in it, and it just completely covers the canvas. And you know the, what I'm talking about. The drip and the lines are everywhere. It's completely chaotic. It's totally an action. And if I say, what's the story? I can't enter that. I don't even know what the story. What's the narrative? Where's grandma on the turkey? I can't look at that painting. It's not asking me for that kind of narrative. It's asking me to look at it with a different set of questions. What, how do I feel about these colors? How do I sense these colors cohere? What do these colors make me feel? How do I bring that feeling back into the world? And, uh, you know, to challenge what Tony's saying a little bit, that's what he's not incorporating in that critique, that there are other questions to ask, not just the ones about humanism. Though I think I'm 
partisan on his side of that. Sure. Of the, of the well, I like that you're able to have that double vision, both here are my tastes, mm-hmm. and also I recognize that there may be things of value that, are, that go beyond my tastes. And yeah. it reminds me of um, when Mary Ruffel came to town, she talked about how she, she isn't thrilled with a lot of the things that her 20-year-old students are, are reaching towards, but that she doesn't... She, she cited Louise Bogan in The New Yorker when W.S. Merwin's Lice came out and uh, how um, she wanted to resign from The New Yorker when this came out. And I think she wrote young middle-aged bards with their dim anecdotes of despair around that generation Mm -hmm. of poetry that Mary Ruffle doesn't want to be the person who looks back in 20 years and sees that that, uh, she's condemning something that actually she couldn't see the the value in at the time. That's right. And I think that's a... That's a natural hazard for anyone who writes about poetry. You know, you have you invest so much time into trying to learn what it is you think about it, and to be coherent in writing about it, and to be to be persuasive, um, and to hopefully add something uh, of value—not just another noise, but add something of value to the conversation as best you can. Not that you have any hope that you're going to influence the conversation. That's and that's not even the main reason you do it. You're you're mostly just trying to think through how does you see the art. You do that for ten years and twenty years and thirty years, you can get pretty ossified. Yeah. And you're thinking right. as it's developed over three decades. I mean, even Helen Vendler um, has said she won't review younger poets. She says I just don't understand their resources. Uh, the, the, where they the uh, world they grew up in is so different from mine. Not worse, just so different from mine. I don't know what they're talking about. Well, I, I respect the the ref, the restraint mm-hmm. and the acknowledgement of one's limitations mm-hmm. as a critic more than um, when James Wood will take a postmodern novel and trash it, yeah. but not recognizing the terms in which it's trying to achieve whatever yeah. it's trying to achieve, yeah. like holding on to a, a a different vision of literature that is no longer where literature is. Well, and it. it it may or may not be where it is. Uh, the, where literature is is always fluid. Right. I mean, that's so that's what, you know, when you referenced uh, Tony Hoagland's talk, um, what he's, one thing he's facing is this um, generational shift that we were talking about with the Augustans and the Romantics and the Modernists and so on. And, um, but it's the same shift. Can I just point this out? It's always a shift between a, a conversation and a debate and a leapfrogging between humanism, coherency, um, uh, values of the body, the erotic on the one hand, and um, fragmentation, dislocation, um, and and um, uh, the dissolution of the mind and the world that's, that's complicated, a world of chaos. And whatever period it is, typically those are the two divides. Huh, that's interesting. And the conceptualists, I think, are on the divide of the Dislocation and the dis and the fragmentation, and the uh, Hoaglandists, I guess, uh, the Bispiels are on the side of uh, coherency. Yeah, and um, and uh, trying to find a way to make uh, connection with people. Well, let's pivot to another um, another way of experimenting, one that we're, that doesn't invite this particular controversy and conversation. You you write also in in a long high whistle about uh, using constraints. So in, in some respects, traditional poetry is by nature a constraint-based art form. Different forms have a different number of lines or a certain pattern of, of, of rhyming. 
Um, but writing under a fixed form, and you 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 mentioned uh, C.K. Williams's 138 line poems, and you wrote a, a modified version of the sonnets. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the value in um, imposing a constraint on your work. And I wonder if it's shared, if you share the same sentiment when you're talking about like generational conversations. So like the the Ulipo movement in in France that was responding to the surrealists and the surrealists were saying you need to free write and every and there's ultimate absolute freedom and the olympians were saying no you liberate yourself through constraint so mm-hmm. the more you 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 force a form the more you find your liberation through that constraint so i, I would love to hear about your your take on on that yeah. conversation yeah well i do think that failure is the engine of creativity for sure and that uh, whatever means you use to, to fail in order to figure out what it is you're trying to say is going to be useful to you. And every individual writer has to figure out which one works best for, for yourself, um, whatever your obsession is. Um, there is no free. I'm okay. There is no absolute freedom. <laughs> right. As a writer. Uh, I'll speak about poetry in particular. Um, and I appreciate what some of the conceptualists are trying to do, although I, I I don't think it's going to matter in the end. We're very conservative art. Most of the poems we write, and 90% of the poems we write, take place on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper on one side at about a font between about 10 and 12. And you say that, and it seems obvious when we hear it, but that is a form, a constraint, that many people don't recognize that they're that they're using that's right. because it's so common that's it's right. almost invisible it's an assumption it's a it's gravity really and i think it's true of prose mm-hmm. um when the little bell goes off in the typewriter you move the carriage and go to the next line there's no thought to it at all just depending on where you set your margins and so there there's that constraint and you can be as free as you want you can do all the free writing you want and you should within those constraints but that's a very small space uh, uh, A.R. Ammons tried to narrow the space once, and he wrote an entire book on um, uh, adding machine tape. The book's called The Tale of the Tape of the Year. He took an adding machine tape, which is very narrow, yeah. put it in his typewriter, and that was his line. Um, and so I think writers and artists are always looking for something to go that pushes them back into the field. Uh, uh, we don't play tennis with the, without lines in a net. If you've ever played tennis without a net, you know, you go to a court and there's no net and you play tennis, you spend a lot of time trying to decide whether or not the ball would have gone over the net or not over the net. Right. But the game is much more beautiful with a net. And so I think they always have constraints if, we'll, if you'll just admit them. And then you just adding one more constraint. Okay, I'm going to write only on 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, only on one side. I'm going to set my margin, my left margin, at two inches, not one inch. And every time I get to the tenth syllable, I'm going to go to another line. It's as arbitrary as saying, I'm going to write it on top of this table. Like So the constraints are also arbitrary. Even the, the classical ones, like yeah. what makes a sonnet, even That's though right. it's, it doesn't seem arbitrary because of the storied history of it. That's right. Is That's right. pretty arbitrary. But the, the objective, one objective in writing a sonnet, in addition to trying to say something about the way in which you see the world, let's not forget, one objective is can I um, uh, use this common form and add my one-tenth of one percent of difference? What can I do in this form that is going to expand its possibilities? And so that, too, is not a fixed 
a fixed item. Um, I wonder if, depending on the constraint, if you do discover or access parts of your own abilities around language that you wouldn't necessarily find without it. Like, and so adopting different ones as a means to, to self-discovery. I think, in that, expression. I think intuitively that's right. Absolutely. Um, when you do imitation of someone, a poet, the thing you're most interested in doing one is on the one hand is trying to borrow their sound. But what you're most in search of is where you deviate from their sound and that you, you're riding their wave. And when you catch another wave, that's your sound. And then you take away all the imitation and you go with what you've created. And they help you find your identity. Imitations are really important for that uh, reason. The constraints are endless. <laughs> right. <laughs> to add another paradox. Well, let's, let's talk about another, another mystery in... in I, I guess a mystery of being human around language and translation. You you talk in in a long high whistle about uh, translation that you come across of Keats in Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is your experience in general about reading poetry and translation, um, and your thoughts on on mm-hmm. this specific experience around Keats? Sure. Um, well. Uh, I don't do a lot of translation, so I'm only mostly, I've done very little. And so my response has to be mostly as a reader and not as someone who's done it uh, that much. Um, I think that there are different translational questions. I mean, I'll say the obvious. One is you're trying to render the other language into your language. Um, let's go Italian to English because that's what we're talking about, we're going to talk about. Uh, render Italian into English. And you're trying to um, approximate the Italian into English as close as possible. That's bold. (laughs) That's really bold to think that you can do that. You can take two languages or take two languages that don't use the same letters, Chinese into English. That's quite bold for the translator. The other translational um, stance is, well, I can't do that. That's too bold for me. I'm too humble in front of the problem. And what I want to do is take this amazing thing in Chinese and make it amazing in English. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to worry about all the traditions and histories that that writer was dealing with in their own language. And I'm going to put it in a language to which I can share it to the widest audience I can and be as true to that. Well, that's sort of like Col- Coleman Barks with Rumi, where mm-hmm. he just writes American free verse yeah. rather than trying to go into the, that's right. the form, the Persian form. That's right. And um, those can be side by side. We can't see the world the way a Russian writer sees the world. We just don't have the particular history in our body in order to see that literature that way. But what a poor world we would be if we didn't have Tolstoy. Right. We didn't have Dostoevsky in our language, even flawed as it is. And uh, so the translations are essential for the human community. In the, in the case of the Keats problem, you know, I know the Keats very well. And... Um, at, other people know it better than me, I'm sure. And I tell you what, I think I know it better than Keats because I've read it longer than he did. Um, <laughs> uh, but the Italian translator made a, um, made a decision which I thought uh, went against the, both, both, broke both problems. It neither tried to recreate the poem in Italian the way it was in English, and then it didn't try to keep the spirit of the poem in Italian as it was in English. And I thought that was, you know, that's two strikes. Right. And you only get two. And uh, that's what got me upset about it. Well, in preparing for this 
interview, I, I just randomly came across this quote by Ferlinghetti where he says, a poem can be finished, a translation only abandoned, yeah. which seems in this spirit. And, and you, have this, you have this really wonderful meditation on Ann Carson's Knox, um, a project where she's exploring her grief around the loss of her brother, and at the same time trying to translate a classical poem that is widely considered untranslatable. And doing this endeavor of trying to translate an untranslatable poem into English obviously is an evocation of the inability for her to translate mm -hmm. her grief into language yeah. around her brother. That's right. That's how I read it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, a translation is a version of the original, just like your memory is a version of events in the past. And you're translating the past. And you can either try to translate it image for image, but things begin to leak out, and so you only you what you ended up what you end up translating is your emotional response at that moment toward the images and the events of the past, and that changes as you um, age and presumably get wiser. Uh, in the Ann Carson poem, um, she does an amazing thing uh, with that poem. She basically takes. Each word, it's a very brief poem, uh, Catullus 101, I think it is, which is an elegy for his brother. And um, she uh, tries to translate and define each word from the Latin into the English and build a poem out of that. And then try to keep translating the poem based on all this knowledge of that word and shows the task to be impossible, mm -hmm. ultimately. And so in some sense, you just have to, here's my version of it. Now, the thing about translations is they age. And they age very quickly. So that's why we always need a new translation of Catullus every generation. We need a new translation of Homer's Odyssey every translation. Um, because our language is evolving and fluid. And our sense of the ancient uh, Greece or Latin or whatever is uh, changing and fluid. We learn more stuff about it. And the other translations into our language are also part of the story of the original. And... Um, so translations are always... Well, I was talking about Sherlock Holmes. How many more Sherlock Holmes movies do we need? It's a good as, question. As many as, we, <laughs> as many as we want to go see. Right. right. We have to keep reinterpreting Sherlock Holmes yeah. for our era. Well, let's, let's step outside of the, the book of A Long High Whistle. Tell us a little bit about your, your, both your collaboration with Jeff Baker at The Oregonian and, and then how pursuing the writing uh, about poetry has influenced your poetry, if at all? Mm -hmm. Has it has it complicated, enhanced, or hindered your your pursuit of poetry as an artist? Yeah, it definitely <laughs> hinders it when I think I'm writing too much prose, because yeah. then I can't hear. Uh, ironically, though, some people will say, "No kidding, I can't hear my mind." <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and then I know I need to take a break, uh, so I can get to that got a quieter space in my in my psyche. Um, the writing of prose is so much about, um, it's not entirely about persuasion, but it is about making a case, at least the kind of prose I tend to write about poetry. But working with Jeff Baker at The Oregonian was great. Um, I had done a couple of book reviews for Jeff uh, uh, of poetry, um, and uh, I think I did one where he thought maybe I was a little too fierce. And so we met and talked about it. And I'm, a, I'm very easy to work with. I, you know, I, wanna, I, I want my editor to be happy. And uh, in that conversation, I suggested, well, it would be a lot easier for me to be less, quote, fierce if I could just write about what I wanted to write about and not review something. Mm -hmm. And that's how we cooked up the idea of the columns. And um, 
I'd say for the most part, Jeff's role was um, in uh, keeping me on task, uh, obviously some editing, um, looking out for my interests, uh, kind of cautioning me about saying things that maybe would be impolite uh, uh, on the one end and maybe impolitic on the other end, and um, and also having my back and being a supporter of, of what I was doing uh, when I was being provocative. Um, and being a supporter of the poetry column uh, inside the Oregonian, uh, inside the book review. Uh, he's a terrific editor uh, and, and, a, and a pretty minimal approach. Mm. Uh, if you know Jeff Baker, um, he's a man of few words and they're precise. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's end the, end the program today um, with some thoughts on, uh, well, first of all, who are some poets that you feel like are underread? You mentioned some in in a long high whistle, but regardless of of those necessarily, what who come to mind as poets that you wish were that have sort of dropped out of the historical conversation mm-hmm. in a way that makes you sad that you'd like to put forth today on the radio and say, I've listened to David Byspiel, I'm going to get his book, and I also <laughs> want to read I want to read these poets that yeah that's glorifying it. Um, well, I've been thinking, I'll tell you who I've been thinking about writing about, uh, who seem to have dropped out of the view. Um, well, I just wrote a piece, uh, it came out today on The Rumpus, uh, about Frank Stanford, who's in the news a lot. He was an Arkansas poet who committed suicide um, before his 30th birthday. He started uh, Lost Roads Press, Lost Roads Publisher. And uh, Frank Stanford was kind of a wild child of, of a poet, um, uh, he wrote with a, a deep and fascinating Southern vernacular about um, edgy, out-of-the-mainstream Southern characters um, with a kind of exuberance that is very rare yeah. um, in American poetry right now. Uh, um, an ancestor of his, a literary ancestor of his, would be, I mentioned them already, James Dickey and Robert Penn Warren, and, and both an ancestor and also who he clashed with, literarily. And I'm surprised, not Dickey so much, uh, his work I think isn't aging so well, um, though it's tremendous, but Robert Penn Warren as a poet, I'm surprised, has dropped out. I think he won three Pulitzer Prizes, uh, maybe four, including the for the novel um, All the King's Men. And um, he writes in a it's a very fluid writer, but he's interested in fragmentation and dislocation. That's very popular right now. So I'm surprised that uh, younger poets aren't interested in, that we were talking about, aren't interested in Robert Penn Warren. So there's one I'm, I'm curious about uh, putting some attention into. Um, what about a, a contemporary poet or poets that you, you're really jazzed about at the moment? I like reading Terrence Hayes a lot. I think poets who are kind of my generation, Terrence maybe a little bit younger, um, I think he's a very interesting poet uh, who is trying to be in, very inventive with form and new forms. Uh, has a terrific ear and a lot of passion in his work. I'm very fond of the work of Christian Wyman. Um, uh, his last book, uh, I think it's called, well, I can't remember the title of it. I'm sorry. That's all right. His most recent book, uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Drew, uh, is a wonderful book um, about grief uh, self-grief, really. He's, uh, he has uh, leukemia and um, about trying to survive and also be in a world of joy uh, in a world of faith. Um, uh, I'm very fond of the poet Wendy Willis. 
whose first book is Blood uh, Sisters of the Republic. Um, she writes with um, kind of a third wave feminist view of history uh, from um, as a Westerner. She's um, from Springfield, Oregon. Lives here in Portland. And um, there's three. Yeah. Three I'm really fond of. And, and what are you working on now? Other than the the column with the rumpus, mm. do you have a do you have a artistic endeavor you're you're yeah. engaged in? Yeah, I am. Um, t- two things. Um, on the prose side, I wrote a series for the rumpus called The Poet's Journey. And uh, I'm finishing that up for a, a book that's called that's now called um, A Ladder to the Underground and it's about being a poet uh, about how to be a poet in the modern world uh, how to go from living our everyday life into the imagination into your psyche to recover whatever it is that's lost that you're trying to restore through the poem and then return with that back to the world that's being fluid and moving along and not really thinking about poetry all the time you've been gone hmm. And while you've been changed, it's changing. And, and where do you calibrate the two? So there's that. That's a, a piece of prose. And um, and then I'm uh, finishing up a book of poems, a new book of poems. That's a single poem. It's called, right now, called Republic Cafe. And it's about uh, love in the kind of 9-11 era. And um, it's about how um, in moments of intimacy... Even just you and I sitting, you know, five inches away from each other. Uh, for us to have this conversation, or for you to have any conversation with anyone, or especially if it's an intimate, um, and it's uh, filled with eroticism, is to forget a lot of the tragedies and suffering and violence in the world in that mo- in order to be in that moment. And yet, all of that informs who you are in that moment of intimacy. And so, the forgetting is your memory. And I'm trying to write about that paradox. Mm. Um, that sounds really fabulous. Uh, so that's what I'm working on. Yeah, I look forward to reading that. I, I really thanks. learned. I really enjoyed and learned a lot uh, reading along High Whistle. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. And I'm really glad to come up here and talk. And uh, there's great questions. And it's a lot of fun. You've been listening to David Byspield, a poet, essayist, editor, teacher, and critic, and the author of Along High Whistle. This has been Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>